0: This is Brian Albright, Editorial Director for Digital Engineering Magazine and DE 24-7 Online. And this
1: is Kenneth Wong, Resident Blogger and Senior Editor for DE 24-7. Welcome to our debut episode of DE Editors Chat. So the first thing we want to talk about, Brian, I guess, is the return of in-person and on-site trade shows. You are actually going to the first one, and that's TCT+ rapid and that shows that shows focuses primarily on 3d printing um how do you feel
0: uh first i feel very unprepared as i think i've mentioned to you before uh, it's been so long since i had to prepare to go to a show that i'd completely forgotten i need to arrange airfare or get up the <laughs> hotel. um so i've uh it's been difficult to sort of wrap my head around it it makes sense that tct rapid would be a show that goes back to in-person early because it's very difficult to sell these types of printing systems without being able to have the hardware right in front of the end users. And in fact, uh, really sort of the first industry show to go back to in-person was the AMUG uh, conference, the Additive Manufacturing Users Group. That happened down in Florida uh, about a month or so ago and seemed to go off pretty well. Uh, Rapid will be in Chicago on September 13th, and I'm going to be curious because this is a, a much more uh, elaborate show typically than the Amug conference. It's more of a traditional type of trade show with a big exhibit floor. Uh, so I'm curious to see what kind of attendance they have and how, what sort of differences I'll see on the floor when we're there.
1: That's a good point, Brian, because the nature of the product makes some trade shows possible to easily convert to a virtual format. uh, And other trade shows like TCT and Rapid, which focuses on the touchy-feely technology 3D printing, it's really difficult to make it exciting to just aim a webcam at a 3D printer and show you what's happening.
0: Uh, so I expect maybe in the next year or so we'll see a bit of a recalibration about how and when people decide to go to these types of shows and how much virtual content the other shows, maybe not something like Rapid, but but uh, conferences that are much more uh, software focused uh, might offer, you know, continue to offer virtual content in addition to having an in-person conference.
1: Seagrove is this year, virtual, and it's from August 9 to 13. Seagraph, on the other hand, because it focuses a lot on graphics technology, um, 3D ray trace, 3D visuals, and things like that, things that can be easily consumed through a browser window. Um, it, I don't think that they are going to have too much of a difficulty making a successful show out of that. but. Right. Secret of 2022, on the other hand, is set to occur in Vancouver, of course, uh, depending on what's happening with the COVID situation, because the Delta variant that is emerging is uh, worrying news and
0: it's something that we didn't expect. It um, You know, speaking of virtual event, you also wanted to highlight uh, a story today about a virtual race. Can you tell me some more about that? I know you did some reporting on
1: it. It's an interesting race that we decided to report on because unlike any other races, it actually takes place inside a server, as it were. Since it's a virtual race, the cars don't race on a real track, but it race in a virtual environment this is a race that is hosted by ANSYS and it's called Indy Autonomous Challenge and this is where before the real race well the real race is going to take place in Indianapolis Motor Speedway track in October of this year but the virtual race has already happened in June and the virtual race allows the competing team to sort of test out their self-driving code in that virtual race.
0: Do they have any sort of anticipation of how closely the virtual race might resemble the actual race? No, the race may be virtual, but the
1: word money is real. So we're talking about first price, 100,000, and second runner up, 50,000, not virtual money, real currency. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the interesting thing that the winner revealed to me is that, say, in a real race, you watch your rival, rival drivers step into the car and uh, you watch the way they race, you, you understand the personality. You understand the kind of risk that they like to take, um, how, they, how they treat the corners, how they tend to speed up in certain places of the track and things like that. Surprisingly, in a virtual race, you also learn the personality of the team that programs the AI car so you understand whether somebody plays whether a certain team plays it safe or not and whether a certain team has programmed their car to be much more aggressive when going after uh, likely crash scenarios or not so that's an interesting thing for me I didn't expect that
0: What else did you have for us
1: this week, Kath? I was also going to talk to you about a 3D-printed bridge. You reported on it, I believe. And it's a 3D-printed bridge that was opened recently in um, Amsterdam. Have you ever been to Amsterdam, Brian? I have not been to Amsterdam. I think I've been there once, but unfortunately when I was there, the bridge, uh, this 3D printed bridge uh, wasn't available for me to check out yet, but apparently it recently launched and it involves the MX3D, uh, MX3D printing firm that um, they specializes in printing large objects. So we're talking about architectural objects, bridges, of course, in this
0: case. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we have also reported on mx 3d printing a robotic arms what does this suggest to you brian about the the direction 3d printing is going with this project
0: well i i think we're seeing definitely in other uh, countries and with other companies that sort of specialize in this large format printing that we're going to see uh, you know bigger and bigger literally bigger and bigger applications for 3D printing. You know, we're seeing 3D printed homes. Um, I think the idea of 3D printed infrastructure is certainly interesting, uh, especially in the backdrop of the infrastructure spending discussions we're having here in the U.S. and the fact that uh, those projects here often take a very long time and are much more expensive than they typically are in other parts of the world. Uh, if you look at city infrastructure in the U.S., for example, the, the costs are really staggering, and the length of time it takes to complete projects is equally staggering. So, if there's a way to take some of this, uh, some of these projects and deploy additive to them, I think there's potentially some cost and time savings, and it's an interesting direction for the the technology to go. I mean, here at DE, we typically focus on a lot of the. Uh, you know, part and component and prototype type, you know, production using 3D printing in automotive or in uh, consumer goods, um, but this sort of architectural or infrastructure printing, I think, has even greater, you know, potential in a lot of ways, provided, you know, provided it can meet the safety requirements needed.
1: The interesting aspect of this project, of course, is the use of Autodesk generative design software. Um, it tends to show that in the case of 3D printing um, projects, generative design works quite well, doesn't it? Because in this case, generative design allows them to create the very um, membrane-like bridge barriers and structures based on the load bearing scenarios of the bridge. It seems to me like in many cases, 3D printing projects needs generative design for a really good aesthetically uh, pleasing and uh, structurally sound design and generator design also need 3D printing to manufacture these kind of design because without 3D printing it would be pretty difficult to manufacture these kind of um, swirly curving uh, alien-like shapes.
0: That's true and, and now that you mention it because we, we've done some coverage recently of how uh, generative design can be used for other types of production technologies, not just 3D printing. It can be applied, uh, given the right parameters, to machining, injection molding, other types of production processes. I'm wondering if there could be other potential uses for generative design in that sort of, you know, the architecture and construction space that I, we don't see it normally. Most of the applications we've seen generative targeted at have been, uh, you know, more functional products rather than structures. But I'm curious as to, you know, in terms of the software vendors, how much attention they've given to that for construction.
1: Let's also talk about some of the important mergers and acquisition news that is happening recently. And one of them has to do with HP and Teradici. And I think you are working on it. What can you tell us
0: about that? Well, yeah, it's been a very busy year in terms of mergers and acquisitions uh, pretty much all across all the markets that we cover. This one uh, caught my eye because as a lot of companies are contemplating a return to offices uh, and also different models of working hybrid in-person or remote working, uh, Teradici was one of those vendors that emerged as being uh, quite important in that space because they have a technology that enables users to access, uh, you know, HPC and server resources remotely. They've been traditionally a big partner with Dell and some other OEMs in the workstation space, and they have really helped a lot of companies shift into this remote work model that has been difficult in many cases for a lot of engineering use cases because of the Type of compute resources they need access to because of the size of the files they're working with, because of security concerns and IP concerns. Uh, so Teradici, you know, emerges a big player there. And I've most closely associated them with Dell, frankly, uh, just because of a lot of the work they've done with that particular OEM. So with HP acquiring them just really underlines how important that remote work piece is going to be moving forward, especially for the hardware vendors here. And it and it sort of leaves me wondering what kind of relationships are going to have with non hp workstation vendors the hp has sort of reassured the market that they'll continue to have those other oem relationships but i'm curious how long that could you know that could last given the competitive nature of that particular market
1: according to hp's press office so they will retain the teradici brand so i think they recognize teradici has established itself in our space, and it suddenly has ongoing relationship with Box and Dell, other OEM vendors. So it would be, it would be beneficiary to everybody to have this brand stay around and the relationship with other vendors uh, um, go well. Let's talk about some other things. Um, this is Olympic season. You know, one of my favorite destinations is Japan. Unfortunately, I cannot go there, but. There are athletes who are going there, and you have a story
0: that you're working on that concerns the Olympics, I believe. Yes, uh, we're going to be providing some additional coverage of how engineering has been used in the Tokyo Olympics. Um, have you been watching the Olympics, Kenneth?
1: I have watched some of them because I watched some Japanese TV for my Japanese language <laughs> practice, so I've seen some of the races. It's really funny to watch races with empty stadiums without audience.
0: It has been interesting. We were uh, we watched quite a bit. We were watching again last night. I'm based in Cleveland, and a, a Cleveland area athlete, Katie, I believe it's pronounced Nagyoti, uh, won gold in Women's Pole Vault yesterday, or I guess maybe the day before, given the time change. Um, so we've been paying close attention, and I, I've been more and more curious, especially watching something like Pole Vault, where as I'm watching it, I'm wondering, is there some physics simulation that will explain to me how any of this is humanly possible because i don't understand how you can take a full-grown adult human and move them that far in the air on this very wobbly metal pole Uh, so i've been thinking a lot about it and i i just wanted to sort of close on this piece that i found Uh, it's on the week but it's based on reporting from the south china morning post and some some other sources in china that the China Aerospace and Technology Corporation actually helped the Chinese swim team prepare for the Olympics and they did so using some technology that the government has used to develop ballistic missiles of all things. Uh, they've been creating uh, simulations and part of that was built on actually having the swimmers sit in a wind tunnel and simulate swimming against the wind. And then they used the data from those test to calculate drag and help them train better so that they could perform better in an actual Olympic pool hmm. that's fascinating because so uh, we have previously
1: covered the relationship between simulation technology and um, athletic events before uh, I remember that we widely covered for example the use of ANSYS simulation software in um, Bicycle races, cycling races, because aerodynamics aerodynamics is very important. Frankly, before I started, um, I started working at DE. I didn't, I didn't see the relationship between
0: simulation software and athletic events, sporting events. And it's fascinating to to look at this because last summer we did a whole issue on sports engineering. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways that these types of technologies affect performance, you know, creating running shoes that have a, what appear to be a pretty significant effect on, uh, running performance. And I guess it sort, of, sort of moves you into this ethical question of, you know, how much are we in balancing a race using certain types of technology? If we're designing better shoes Uh, You know how much of this is the runner, how much of it is the shoe, or whatever piece of equipment they may be using. You know, like like a javelin or the pole for the pole vault. Or uh, I was also reading uh, that the just design of the Olympic swimming pool has been altered over the years to help improve the speeds of the swimmers. So they, for instance, if you took the gold medal, a gold medal swimmer from this year's Olympics, and put them in a different type of pool, you might get different times from them, uh, just because of the way the the structure is designed
1: that's and, right because um this is an interesting debate to a uh, debate that is ongoing i believe um when you are able to use technologies to give your athletes certain advantages at what point do you cross the line formula one for example i learned while i was writing this um, story about the in the autonomous car race, that Formula One, for example, banned certain self-navigating um, vehicle-related technologies. Uh, uh, control trans- aut- automatic controlled transmission is one of those technologies that's banned since 2007 in mm-hmm. Formula One. And their argument, the organizer's argument, is precisely what you pointed out, that uh, they want to see the skill of the driver, not necessarily the technologies competing. On the other hand, of course, the race like the in the autonomous race is specifically designed to highlight the technology and what you can do with the technology. Um, It's an ongoing debate and I don't think there's an easy
0: way to settle it. Probably not, but I'm gonna be continuing as as we wrap up the Olympics this week, watching for areas where I think maybe Uh, simulation may have played a role in producing some of the really phenomenal results we're seeing out of the athletes that is all for this debut episode of de editors
1: chat thank you very much for joining me brian i really enjoyed our chat and i hope we can continue producing this series
0: all right thank you kenneth me too